0: Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Going to the book of Ecclesiastes and we come to chapter 5, which takes an abrupt change of tone. We've been going through and Solomon's been telling us about how life seems to be meaningless to some degree, uh, a vapor gone quickly, uh, unable to grasp. There's a certain satisfaction that we want from life, from relationships, from money, from work, and we're not able to grasp that in any sort of um, enduring way. And so, the first four chapters have been Solomon just simply saying, this is what it's like, isn't it, to live life under the sun, but then all of a sudden we turn a corner and he starts admonishing the worshipers of God, those who come to His temple, and it's Interesting as to why he might be doing that right now in this book, and we'll get into that in a moment. But our passage before us is Ecclesiastes 5 1 through 7. I've entitled this message, Worship with Reverence. Let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are, that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, busyness, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. I think many of you would agree with me that reverence, the idea of reverence is largely gone from our culture. Maybe the place that you would see the most reverence is at a funeral. People don't come into funerals skipping and cracking jokes. They come in with a certain amount of reverence because of what the situation is communicating. It used to be that churches were a place of reverence. You'd come in careful, thoughtful and what I don't mean is grumpy, the idea of coming to a place like that grumpy and saying, I'm reverent, no, you're just grumpy and rude. There's nothing wrong with being joyful when you come to the house of God. But with reverence, there's a certain weightiness. I understand what this situation is. I understand what's happening here and that brings a certain awe or respect. It used to be that weddings possessed some reverence. Graduations were a time of a kind of reverence. We're celebrating the end of something and the beginning of something else, the end of preparation and the beginning of now life or this next season. And that kind of invoked a certain heaviness or weightiness. I remember looking at uh, some churches online when I was uh, considering a certain... Area of the country and uh, seeing just kind of what the churches were like in that area, and came across the worship service, worship service of a particular church where the stage was decorated as a football locker room, and the pastor got up at the beginning of the service and started throwing footballs out to the crowd that was kind of going crazy, um, and the feeling just kind of struck me that where's the awe of God, where's the reverence for God. It's, it's certainly absent from a lot of parts of culture, but unfortunately, sometimes it's absent from uh, local church gatherings, and it's a sad commentary on kind of the nature of who we are today. See, this study that Solomon's been in has been a study of life under the sun, what it's like to live in, in a world seemingly apart from God. Here's what it's like to pursue the world, not really having much thought of God, and it's frustrating. It's not pleasing. And I think the connection between chapters one through four and here, chapter five, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this, this admonishing of followers of God as they come to the temple, like watch how you come to the temple of God. What's the connection there? I think the connection is oftentimes a frustrated people start to just throw their hands up and they just start to get loose with their lips and everything. I'm frustrated with how the world's working and, and therefore I can say things like this. And Solomon's saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. God is in heaven, you are on earth. He's paying attention. He's overseeing everything. Again, it's been a life of studying, or it's been a study of life under the sun Apart from much about God, life can be frustrating because things often don't satisfy us like we want to. The state of the government doesn't satisfy us. Our own hearts don't satisfy us sometimes. Our own families don't satisfy us. Our church doesn't satisfy us. Our friends aren't satisfying us. The diagnosis I got from the doctor isn't satisfying me, and there's a frustration, and then I start to just talk. And Solomon's saying, hold on a second. It can be easy to say, well, what's the point? I'm frustrated. It doesn't matter what I do. But here in chapter 5, Solomon says, wait, your life and specifically your words are important. God hears all that you say and you must live before him in reverence. We often respond to frustrations in life by loosening our tongues, don't we? The problem is that frustrated people aren't careful people. Frustrated people become complaining people. Frustrated people become unkind people. And the Bible nowhere allows us to sin because we're frustrated, nowhere. So it's good for us to consider a passage like this, of people dissatisfied by the things of the world who can be frustrated, sometimes for right reasons, but that is never an excuse to start sinning or to live without reverence as we come before the Lord, and especially as we come before the Lord together. There are a couple of problems that the preacher of Ecclesiastes sees as keeping people from worshiping with reverence, and that'll be our outline for today. Two sins which keep us from reverently worshiping God. Two sins that keep us from reverently worshiping God. The first is the failure to listen but instead speaking rashly. The failure to listen and then instead speaking rashly. You see that in verses 1 through 3, the problem of talking too much in front of God rather than listening. It starts off in verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Just think about that for a moment. Guard your steps. When we think of watching where we walk, it often involves people's dogs walking along our grass, and then later we go outside and we kind of are watching where we walk, guarding your steps, paying attention to where you step. You could, you could think of a military illustration and going to a battlefield and, and trying to locate or discern where the landmines might be, guarding your steps. It's interesting that Solomon says, guard your steps when you come to the house of God. He's most likely referring to the temple that he's constructed there with the help of many thousands of others in Jerusalem, people worshiping, constantly coming to the temple, coming to the house of God where He is said to dwell, and Solomon saying, be careful how you approach this place. And we know that there are exhortations not just in the Old Testament but in the New Testament to consider how we come and worship God. You can see the Sermon on the Mount for Jesus' teaching on this. You can see Paul in 1 Corinthians, right? We studied 1 Corinthians 11. Before you come and prepare to take the Lord's table, guard your steps. Eat at home, as they were coming early and taking the, the food, the best food, and forgetting about the poor and the church. There is a call, Old Testament and New Testament, to consider how you approach the gathering of God's people for worship. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. You get the idea that people are coming in, they're doing the work, later on he'll refer to uh, the the work of their hands being destroyed. It's most likely speaking of the work that they've done to prepare the sacrifices that they're bringing to the temple. And and here we are, here's my sacrifice, and they're talking, they're, they're criticizing, they're whatever they're doing, their lips are loose and they're bringing their sacrifice. And he says, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they don't know that they're doing evil. So this person's prepared the sacrifice. They're coming in. They've used their mouth in sinful ways. Maybe they're even doing so as they come to the temple or come into the temple. They come before the priest and they're offering the sacrifice. They think it's a sacrifice to God, pleasing to him but they don't know that they're doing evil. Verse two, we get an insight into why their words are the way they are. Be not rash with your mouth, anxious, worried with your mouth. That, That word rash has the idea of anxiety to it. So don't come into the gathering of God's people for worship. Don't come into that environment with anxiety on your heart so then your mouth is just running wild. That's what he's saying. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. There are a few places in this passage, verses 1 through 7, that indicate God's listening. He's listening to what you say. For God is in heaven and you're on earth. Now, I want to explain why Solomon uses this language. All throughout the scriptures, the scriptures communicate to us that God is near to his people, especially as they approach him in worship. God wants his people to know he's nearby. That's called the doctrine of imminence. He's close. He's on earth. He's near to his people. He dwells amongst his people. When we come to a New Testament reality, we understand that the Holy Spirit's been put into our hearts. He dwells in his people. And there's something very special about that. But we can't appreciate the imminence of God and say, well, then the transcendence of God, the fact that he is also out of this world, high and lofty. We can't say the imminence is wonderful and therefore he's not really transcendent anymore. No, no, no. Solomon's showing here yes, he's near you, but he's also over you. He's also watching and ruling and listening. So don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. He utters a a proverb here, and he's referring to the type of person that's always talking. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Oh, here's my sacrifice. Bring in my sacrifice, and I'm going to do this. And then afterwards, we're going to go... And in all the talking, you can find all sorts of different sins. Pride, complaining, slander, promising things to God that they never get around to doing. And he's saying, a dream comes with much business. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. This is what I'm all about. And a fool's voice has many words. It's the person that makes promises to God but never come, gets around to doing it. It's a person who talks a big religious gain, game but doesn't really back it up. And Solomon's saying, guard your mouth, guard your mouth. You're on earth, God's in heaven. You're coming before His presence. Let your words be few. It is better to listen than to just blabber on and on. Listen when you come to the house of God. This person is talking too much to be able to listen. There's a reason they're not listening. It's because they're busy talking. The mouth is a problem. We see this, don't we, in Luke, Luke 10, Jesus and His disciples are gathered in a house. And in Luke 10, we we see a contrast between someone listening and someone talking, has some things to say. Luke 10, 38, now as they were, went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she went up to him and said, so notice Mary's listening, Martha's saying. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. She's not just criticizing Mary here, is she? She's criticizing the Lord. Do you not care? I'm doing all this work. I've been up since dawn. I've been preparing for you all, and she's just sitting there listening. Jesus says, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha. Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. He's actually telling Martha, stop criticizing her and start being like her. Listen, listen to what I say, listen to what I teach. The connection is interesting between this passage here in Luke and the one in Ecclesiastes. I told you in Ecclesiastes that that word in verse 2, be not rash with your mouth. There's a certain anxiety behind that. Well here, why is Martha speaking rashly? Jesus says because she's anxious and troubled by so many things. Again that's why I say that frustration and anxiety can tempt us to loosen our lips and to say things that we shouldn't be saying. Failure to listen, but instead speaking rashly, keeps us from worshiping reverently. Now, there are sins of the mouth that accompany sometimes the gathering of God's people, aren't there? Coming to the gathering of God's people and not guarding your step, but coming into the doors and you start gossiping, you start slandering, you start complaining, you start criticizing. You start belittling someone in the eyes of another person. And I wonder what the thinking is. I know there's a certain lack of thinking that comes with that. But is it possible that there's the thought, well, I'm right. I'm right about why I'm criticizing this person, so I can then talk to this person about it and belittle this other person in their sight. Well, being positionally right, having the right position in some sort of dispute doesn't mean that you get to slander. God doesn't excuse it. I'll go ahead and gossip. I mean, after all, they deserve it. I mean, you're right. No, God's holy. It's not an excuse. I think sometimes that is the unstated excuse. I'm right, so I can talk this way. Well, now you're wrong. not right or is it that i'm just kind of in the parking lot i mean once 10 a.m hits that's when the serious stuff happens god's watching i mean when pastor john gets up and does announcements and when pastor andrew preaches and when josh is leading singing and bridget and and you know someone's doing this or that or leading the lord's table i mean god's watching that they better know the words that they say up there god's watching absolutely right he is But he's also listening to everyone else. And it's not just he starts listening once we come into the auditorium. (laughs) He's in the parking lot. He's in the lobby. He's home after the service. He's in the car after the service. He's around when you're talking to so-and-so at Bible study. He hears everything we say. He knows it all. So do we excuse sins like this, gossip, slander, complaining, because Well, I'm right, so I can say this. Well, that's wrong. Or the important stuff is what's being said up here. And are these lyrics good? Is the pastor saying what I think he should say? Well, are you saying what you think you should say? What about your mouth? So, friend, guard your steps when you come to the house of the Lord. That application is literally in the passage. Guard your steps when you come to the house of the Lord. Consider Glenn and Gertrude gossip, Glenn and Gertrude gossip, or Calvin and Carmela complainer, or Silas and Sally the slanderers. They gossip and complain and slander, and the 10 o'clock hits, and we come in here and we start singing, and they sing, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love. I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you in all I do. Wait, hold on a second. Sing that line again? (laughs) It's my joy to honor you in all I do, says Sally and Silas, slanderer. It's good for us to pause and think about what our mouths say. Friend, another application from these verses, don't be rash with your mouth. It's especially good to know when you're anxious about something, when something's troubling you, and to realize in that moment, okay, now there's a temptation that comes with this. And it's the loosening of my mouth, letting poison come out of my mouth in the words of Romans 3. Be careful. Don't be rash with your mouth. I don't know if any of you remember writing papers in high school or college or graduate school and they had a certain word count. Man, you examined your words when you had a word count for a paper, didn't you? Two thousand word paper. I mean, you did things like, you edited don't to do not so that you can get, like, another word. You paid attention to your words. You even ridiculously said things like, this is a very unique situation. Things can't be very unique. They're simply unique. Unique means very different. So, but you would do that because you're trying to lengthen the paper a bit. You paid attention to your words. Solomon's simply saying, Follower of God, pay attention to what you say. Examine your words carefully because God is. So don't be rash with your mouth. Pastorally, I want to give you some advice here when it comes to prayer. They, they would offer prayers in the, the temple, the tabernacle, the presence of God. I believe that it is good to let the scriptures inform what you say to God. That's just not my thinking, by the way. Jesus taught this in John 15. In John 15, he said this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, my words remain in you, my words are in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So there's this idea that God's words are in us and then we speak words to God in prayer. And so sometimes when we, utter ridiculous prayers or say ridiculous things in the presence of God's people or just just let our mouths run wild. The word of God isn't dwelling in us, is it? Even think of the exhortation in Colossians 3 that the word of God dwell in you richly, admonishing one another in all wisdom. The word has to be in you first before you speak to another person even about an area of their life that needs warning. So, all throughout the Scripture, you see this pattern of knowing God's Word and then speaking. So, just just for your prayer life, as you consider what you say to God, what you say before God, I'd encourage you to at least be in some passage. Meditate on one verse of the Psalms, perhaps, or as you read through a chapter, turn that into prayer. Let the Scriptures, let God's Word guide what you then say back to Him. And what you say to Him on behalf of others, too. So, just by way of application here, as we guard our steps, as we consider how we talk as we approach God, it's good to let the Scriptures inform what we say, whether it's to others or to God. So, I would encourage you to read the Scriptures before prayer, read even intentional and thoughtful prayers of others. Some of you know of the little book of old pilgrim, uh, Puritan prayers, Valley of Vision. Those are good prayers, thoughtful prayers that reflect God's Word that others have prayed for centuries that we can then kind of jump on ourselves and pray those ourselves as our own heart is wanting to speak to God. So, read the Scriptures, read and pray the prayers of others, pray the Scriptures, come across a passage and pray a prayer of confession, pray a prayer of praise as you see the character of God reveal. pray something for other people, pray something for other churches, Pray something for other mission partners, meditate on it, talk to God from His Word. It's a good way to guard your steps and guard, guard your mouth. So failure to listen and speak rashly, and therefore then speak rashly, keeps us from reverent worship. We see that first in this passage. But there's a second sin that keeps us from reverent worship, and that's in verses 4-7, to seven, a failure to keep promises to God. A failure to keep promises to God. And this, in the ESV, they're referred to as vows, commitments that you've made to God. The preacher is going to speak of making flippant promises to God. And these are clearly noticed by God. God, if you you just would allow me to get this job, then I will give all of that extra income to some missions effort that my church is involved in. And then you get the job. Where's the additional income to the mission's effort? Well, I mean, well, where is it? Or God, if if you just let me pass this test, then I'll do this for you. God, if you if you would just—I'm getting older here. If you would just give me a spouse, I, I will love them exactly like you call me to love them. How's that going? (laughs) Be careful, because God does listen when we speak. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. When you vow a vow. Now, vows are not commanded in the Bible. A vow is a free will offering, a free will commitment. You can make a vow to God. You can commit to doing something for Him, but those should be done very carefully. There are many examples in the Scriptures of failing at keeping vows to God. Here's one of them. So it's not required that you make all these promises to God. If you're going to, then pay it. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. How do we make vows today? We make marriage vows today before God and these witnesses. Those are big commitments. We make vows to one another in the local church. We commit I'll do this as your brother and sister in this local church, I'll receive this from you, my brother and sister in this local church. How are we doing with our membership commitments? How are we doing with our marriage vows? God's listened to all of these. He pays attention. He's in heaven. He sees all. He knows all. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. Verse 5 It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. So, So just don't make commitments that you can't keep. The song lyric I recited earlier, we actually don't sing that song here. (laughs) Amazing love, it is amazing. That's not the reason we don't sing it. It is God's amazing love. It's my joy to honor you in all I do because I don't think we obey that all the time. So I'd rather not say a lot of things to God that I don't keep. (laughs) And in songs when we do make commitments to Him, it is good to do those prayerfully, right? So if we did sing that song, or if you go somewhere and you do sing that song, I'm not saying it's a bad song. I'm just saying, maybe you'd turn that into more of a prayer. Lord, make it my joy to honor you in everything I do. Words matter. Words to God matter. He does care. He's our Father. He listens, and that's glorious. That's wonderful. Joel Beeky says that it's... Good to know that God is near us and a friend to us. Jesus is called our brother. It's good to know that he's near. But that can never allow us to dismiss how holy and righteous he is. It can never kind of then give us the freedom to say whatever we want. We can't do that. Verse 6, Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger... I take this to be the priest, the one that represents God to you and you to him. Take that to mean the priest because Malachi 2 refers to the messenger as the priest. So it's this person coming to the temple, the priest is there, and this person makes a voluntary vow to God I'm going to do this, and then doesn't get around to paying it. And the priest says, Hey, you were going to do this. Well, it was a mistake. I I really shouldn't have said that. Well, that's true. but you did, let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Again, the work of your hands there, I I do believe that is referring to the sacrifice they think they're giving. I've done the work to get this here and and I brought it to the priest and it was, I mean, I came from 10 miles away and brought this bull up the hill and, and now we're here and God's going to accept my offering, but it's the picture of God destroying the work of your hands. And again, verse 7 ends like the previous paragraph ends, verse 3. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. I'm offering this to God. I'm going to promise this to God. God, I'm going to do this for you. God, if you give me this, I'm going to do this. Lots of words and dreams, but it's all empty. And then this at the very end. But God is the one you must fear. And I've told you before that our English word fear doesn't fully grasp what this is a call to. Let me say it this way. God is the one you must revere, look to, be in awe of, be amazed by. You're running your mouth. Look to God and see his character. Think about what he's like. Revere him. Be in awe of him. That will help you to worship him, them, in the right way, with reverence. God is the one you must revere. The reason we have a hearing and a speaking problem is that we have a seeing problem. We don't behold the Lord enough. We don't consider him enough enough. We don't revere him enough. We don't know him well enough. But the more we fix our gaze on him, think about him, meditate on his words, see his character all through the pages of Scripture, the more we're thinking about what he's like, appreciating what he's like, seeing what Jesus did for this little girl here, seeing how Jesus answered this question here, the more we see him... the more we rightly walk with him, the more we respond to him rightly. The more we consider him, the more our character reflects him. The more we revere him, the more we resemble him. The more we look at him, the more we look like him. This is a scriptural reality. And so when you say this person's mouth doesn't sound like Jesus' mouth, this person's actions don't seem like Jesus' actions, my actions don't seem like Jesus' actions, it's because I've got a sight problem, I'm not seeing Him very well, I'm not looking to Him, I'm not thinking about Him, I'm not meditating on Him, I'm not studying Him, I'm not focused on Him, I'm not considering Him. Just kind of a minute in the morning and then gone and now just kind of loose with my lips. The mouth problem, the ear problem is ultimately a sight problem. We're not fixing our eyes on him and his greatness. There is a battle for our attention. I hope you feel that. I think Satan is very happy to have you listen to podcasts about the political state of our country for 23 hours a day. Hey, listen away. Hey, read plenty of books. Study plenty of other things. Have the news on all the time. Just have at it. There's a battle for the mind. There's a battle for our attention. The God of this world, Satan, would love for us to be too distracted to revere God too distracted to come up with reasons why He's worthy of awe. You have to give your time to something, and we often give it to so many things that distract us from Him. This is not me saying that to be a faithful Christian, you've got to be reading this 24 hours a day, eating breakfast, eating lunch, eating dinner, someone asking for help, sorry, I'm reading the Bible. That's not what this is talking about. Blessed is the one who meditates on the word, Psalm 1. Joshua 1.8 called to meditate on the word. Colossians 3 calling us to let the word dwell in us richly. This could simply be praying, understanding the passage, thinking through it, taking time in it so that it's marinating our heart. so that as we go from place to place, conversation to conversation, job to job, appointment to appointment, those words are at the forefront of our mind because we spent time thinking through them and talking to God about them and thinking and enjoying His character, what He's like, and that starts to change us. It literally does. Think about this. When Jesus called people to come into the Christian life, He said this, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. The one who looks on, considers the Son. This is what happened when you became a Christian, isn't it? You were torn up about your own sin. You were frustrated by how you were living. And then you consider Jesus, the perfect representation of God because He is God, shows us what God the Father is like as He comes in human flesh. And you realize this man is holy and this man is also amazingly merciful to that person, to this person. Maybe He'd be merciful to me." And you looked upon the Son, and you believed in Him, and you were given life. You entered the the, the, the Christian community. You entered a relationship with God by looking at the Son. Guess what, Christian? That's how you continue in the faith as well. That's how you continue growing as a Christian. You keep looking at God. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We recite this passage a lot around here because this is how we grow as Christians. And we all with unveiled face, comparing us to Moses, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So what this is saying is, Moses beheld the glory of God. He had to put a veil over his face. Now, in understanding who Jesus is, now for these new covenant believers, we see Jesus in human flesh, God in human flesh, and we go, this is amazing. God came to earth and this is what he's like. He's merciful. He's just. He's forgiving. This is amazing. So we behold the glory of God. We've seen what he's like. This is amazing. And when we see him, we move from one level of glory to the next. We are changed. What you revere, you resemble. What you look at, you start looking like. How does that happen? By the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is putting God on display in front of us. That's how we grow. So listen, when we come to a passage, that talks about our lips. I believe the wrong application is to do this. Oh, I know I've got such a mouth on me. Oh, I'm going to do better. Richard Sibb said, you don't stop sinning by trying not to sin. You stop sinning by beholding God you look at God and you look at how self-controlled Jesus was with His words and how His words gave life and how His words gave comfort. And you start to then be like that as you consider Jesus. That's how we grow. That's how we change. And Solomon says at the end of our passage, God is the one you must revere. The solution to our mouth problems is knowing God well and being in awe of Him. That's the solution. So friend, keep your commitments to God. When you make them, keep them. Be careful about making them. Consider your marriage vows. Consider your commitments that you've made to your local church. Consider even for every Christian, there's a reason baptism is public. You are identifying with Jesus Christ, and you're identifying with Jesus as Lord. That's a commitment, and we'll see that in a moment. As these three are baptized, pray for them to keep their commitment to Jesus Christ, their Lord. Consider your commitments. Keep them. But I want to end with this. If you've got a heartbeat this morning, you're probably convicted right now. (laughs) Considering the way you speak. Considering, considering how you've treated your other brothers and sisters, considering things you've said to God and not fulfilled. I want you to consider Peter. Peter, the apostle, is just like us in that, right? One of you is going to betray me. Not me. I won't betray you. <laughs> well, there's a commitment that he just made to God. And he didn't fulfill it. That night he betrayed him. Three times. Swearing that he wouldn't. Swearing that he didn't know him. So Peter knows what it's like to be you and I. We know what it's like to be Peter. But I want you to consider Jesus' relationship to Peter. After Jesus rose from the dead... How many times does the Bible show us that Jesus rebuked Peter for what he did? None. Why? Because Peter's sin had been taken care of. It was finished. It was over. It was done. Peter deserved the wrath of God for how he abandoned Jesus, for how he overpromised, for how he arrogantly and pridefully compared himself to the other disciples and mistreated them. Peter deserved. God's wrath for that, and Jesus took it. Done. So, after Jesus rises from the dead and when He communicates to His disciples, guess what He never brings up? The fact that they left Him. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that amazing? Because if it were you and I, we'd say, so? You have everything to say? Hey, remember the other night when I was in the garden and arrested and you guys said you'd be my best friends forever? Hey, where were you? Have anything to say? You won't find that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But what do you find? Jesus restoring himself to Peter, although he never sinned against Peter. You see Jesus giving, giving Peter A mission. You go feed my sheep. Those on God's mission are those who've been reconciled to him. God sent Peter out to be like him. God has, in human flesh, has reconciled himself to Peter and then sent him to go be his representative. Jesus died for those who commit horrible sins with their mouth. Jesus forgives those who commit horrible sins with their mouth. Jesus restores himself to those who've sinned with their mouth. Jesus restores himself to those who have spoken arrogantly, made promises, dreamed all these dreams, and offered all these sacrifices that were just worthless. He forgives people for that. If that's not something to revere him for, I don't know what is. He is amazingly merciful to those who have sinned with their words. That's Jesus. I want to bring you to the Temple complex again. Luke eighteen, nine through fourteen. A Pharisee praying to God and telling God how wonderful he is. God, thank you. Thank you, Father, that I'm not like him. And then the camera moves over to the him, over to the one he's talking about, the tax collector who can't even look to God. And in that, there's something special, isn't it? Isn't there? He's evidently come to the temple guarding his steps. I don't even deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be in the presence of God. I can't even look up. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Here's another reason to revere God to revere Jesus Christ because Jesus says that's the one. That's the one who walked out of the temple, went home, and was declared perfectly righteous. That's the one. Jesus, a friend of sinners. Jesus, merciful to a sinner. Jesus, forgiving the sinner who knows that he's wronged and he's told God and he's asked for mercy. Jesus abundantly gives it. Friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're convicted and you think, you know, I I don't revere God. I haven't been living in light of Him being the judge, Him being the ruler, Him being good and gracious. I don't live in light of that. And I have sinned a number of ways with my mouth, gossip, slander, lying, deceit. I've got really good news. That's exactly who God sent His Son to save. His Son who never uttered a sinful word has offered His perfect righteousness to sinners that say, be merciful to me, a sinner. And He also takes their sin upon Himself. He died, He rose again, and now He gives life to His people who've been changed by Him. So Christian, consider your words, consider how you live before God, behold His glory, look at Him, study Him, think about Him, sing about Him, tell your heart about Him, talk to other people about Him, praise your God, and find yourself becoming more like Him as you look to Him. Recently, I came across a documentary that really captured my attention. It's very interesting. Um, Some of you know the name Robert Caro. He's an author who's written four volumes with a fifth one coming on Lyndon Baines Johnson. Some of you are thinking, this is the most boring thing you could ever be talking about. Well, I'm sorry. It's, for illustrative purposes, Caro is a writer who for decades now has written on Lyndon Johnson, and he, in this documentary called Turn Every Page, he talks about uh, his early career as an investigative journalist, and his editor told him, as you investigate, as you look into matters. Turn every page, look at everything that's there. Every court transcript, every interview, turn every single page. That reminds me a lot of coming into the house of God to listen. There are a lot of pages here. God has said a lot of things. He's promised us a lot of things. He's commanded us a lot of things. This is full of God's revelation to us. So it's a reminder to me as we come to the house of God, as we just go to our own house, as we live our jobs, as we just go through daily activities, turn every page, listen to what your God has said, know your God, know what He's like in Exodus, know what He's like in Mark. Know what he says to the Philippians. Know what he's saying. Listen. Follower of God, listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Stop your mouth for a moment. Stop all the criticism. Stop all the frustrations. Listen to God. By the end of the documentary, and the documentary is not just about Robert Caro, it's about his editor also, Robert Gottlieb, and their connection together, writer and editor. And by the end of the documentary, they're turning every page that now Caro himself has written. So at the beginning, it's turn every page and listen, read everything that you need to know. And then now he writes, he speaks, he communicates. And now they're turning every page and weighing everything that he's said. And the documentary talks about even how semicolons are debated between author and editor. And they're considering everything Robert Caro has said on paper, written. I think that reflects the spirit of this passage also. Listen to what God is saying. Turn every page. And then when you speak, when you write, when you post, consider everything that you're saying. Turn every page. Because God is. So worship Him with reverence. Let's pray. Father, this is a wake-up call of a passage. I'm asking that you would give us the ability to listen well to you, to hear what you say in your word, to how you instruct us. I pray in advance even for the Bible study starting in the coming months going through the Gospel of John, that we would hear what you're saying, we would understand what you're communicating to us. So make us good listeners. Father, as we then listen and we consider, make us, Faithful speakers, allow us to speak like your son would speak in any situation that we're in. Allow us to say things that you would have us say. Father, in our listening and in our speaking, we're asking that those acts of worship would be done because we revere you, we fear you, we're in awe of you, we love you, we're captivated by you. So I think, Father, at the end of this prayer and at the end of this passage, that's, that's the big request that the others flow from. Father, give us high and lofty thoughts of You. Jesus Christ, give us high and lofty thoughts of You. Holy Spirit, give us high and lofty thoughts of You so that we would then start to resemble who we revere. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.